Welcome to Ask Pastor Steve. Today, I have three questions from two listeners. I love them. Can't wait to get to them. So let's jump right in. Here is the first question. And this comes from uh, an anonymous questioner. And they're asking us, first question, what scripture passages offer the greatest comfort for couples walking through long-term infertility. And then they comment, so much of scripture highlights the blessing of children, and that can trigger, that can be a trigger for those walking down the road of infertility. What virtues or blessings are in store for those whom God chooses not to bless with biological children? Great question. And uh, let me start here. I just want to say, well, I'm deeply, deeply sympathetic. And I think I do. I'm not a woman, I, uh, but I think I can understand something of the depth of a desire not satisfied. And the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. So I understand that. Has my heart ever been sick? Yeah, it absolutely has been. So I can understand something of what that, that feels like. And I just want you to know I'm really sympathetic. And I also understand that there's probably a form of grieving going on there. And having grieved over things myself, I understand uh, from personal experience that you wish there was a switch where you could just turn it off, but you can't. You can't just turn it off. You can't just make it go away. And psychologists and people tell us that when is grieving done? When it's done. And you can't speed it up. You can't make it go faster. You can't make it go away. So it's something you probably have to deal with. But here's where I would go, honestly. Here's where I would take you. This might not be what you're looking for, but here's where I would take you. I would take you to really great Bible passages, really scrumptious, really rich Bible passages on the theme of the sovereignty of God. That's where I would go. And there's lots of them. For a short one, you could go to Ephesians 1.11. He's the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, the last few chapters of Job, where God kind of brings Job down to size and exalts himself over Job, and, and you recognize he's God and he's the sovereign one. So I would, I would memorize, I would, I would major on passages about the sovereignty of God. Let me tell you a story about that. So some years ago in this church, there was a man named John. John was, I think, only in his 40s. He had a wife and three children, two girls and a boy. And John came down with cancer, bad cancer. John was a truck driver. He drove a delivery truck, local deliveries. And he came down with bad cancer. And they told him he was going to die. John is in the hospital dying. I went to visit him. I went to visit him a number of times. One time when I'm visiting, we're getting close to the death. And he says to me, Pastor, is there anything you can recommend me to read to help me through this? And I recommended to him a book on the sovereignty of God. And he told me later that it was reading that book. And he was never much of a reader. Some people are readers, some people aren't, that's fine. He was never much in the reading category, but he read that book and it was a very theological book and a very biblical book. And he told me near the end, it was that book on the sovereignty of God that got him through his own process of dying. Now I wanna say, if it can get a guy who's dying through his process of dying, it can also help people who are struggling with other things, various other things, including grieving, deeply grieving, over struggles and wrestlings with infertility. I would also encourage you, don't let this sound like this is too trite, too simple of an answer, it's not. It's deep and profound. I would encourage you to memorize specific passages of scripture that, that focus on God's sovereignty and your submission to it. I would memorize those and meditate on them and meditate on them because 
It is the word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit in the hands of the Holy Spirit in your soul is powerful for bringing about change. What kind of a passage? Well, I'd want to memorize Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, which reads, Though the fig tree should not blossom. See, we're in the category of my fig tree's not blossoming. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. That's a bad time. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And I just want to memorize that and others like it and just meditate and meditate on them and pray them in and meditate on them as I lie in my bed at night and and go to sleep, blessing the Lord for his sovereignty in my life. I would just drink very deeply of the sovereignty of God. So books I would recommend would be, this is the one I recommended before, The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. A new book called Providence by John Piper. It's big and thick and John Piper-y. It's very theological. Some you, you who are serious readers like that one more. Another one by Piper, a shorter, easier book, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. These would be really awesome. I would even recommend one. You're going to get a chuckle out of this, but hang in there with me. I would even recommend Fox's Book of Martyrs. So back in the 1600s, the heyday of Puritanism in England, we are told that every family, everybody had a couple of books in their home. One was the King James Version of the Bible, and the next one was Pilgrim's Progress, and the third one, and that was 1700s, by the way, John Bunyan, and the third one was Fox's Book of Martyrs, and what's in there? Stories about martyrs, people who died or suffered terribly for their faith in Jesus Christ. And why would I have you read that? Because you're reading about how other people suffered and remained faithful to Christ and clung to Christ and hung on to Christ can be a great help to you. Let's resurrect the reading of the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress and Fox's Book of Martyrs. I would also recommend to you just lots of rich and edifying and soul-satisfying godly fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, that's got to help you, especially brothers and sisters who will be loving and gracious and sympathetic. They understand what you're going through. They pray for you. They care about you. They encourage you. They support you. So that's where I would go. There are probably other places you can think of, but I'd go there. The big hitter in your life is going to be the sovereignty of God and my ability to rein my passions, my deep God-given desires in to be submissive to the purposes and plan of God for my life. I I really want to emphasize that. So again, I want to just say I'm deeply sympathetic. May the Lord grant you the desire of your heart or the grace to bow if he doesn't. Now here's a second question from the same person. It's anonymous. And they ask about 2 Samuel chapter 6. There's a guy named Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A, Uzzah. And they're moving the Ark of the Covenant, and the thing, somebody stumbles, it's going to topple over. And Uzzah reached out his hand, and he steadied the Ark of the Covenant. And what happened? God struck him dead. And the question they're asking everybody about this isn't the one you're thinking. The question they're asking is not, was that right of God? The question they're asking is, so was Uzzah saved or lost? (laughs) Not the question you'd expect. Good question. Answer, the text doesn't say. On the negative side of that question, was he saved or lost? I want to just say, this was the ark. The ark of God's own holy presence. The dwelling place of God on the planet. This is a holy thing. 
it would seem to indicate a complete failure on Uzzah's part, that he would just reach out like it's some common thing. Oh, I'll grab it. It's following. I'll go ahead and grab it. Man, you don't touch the ark. Now, I know you could also reason, look, he's trying to save the ark out of reverence for the ark. But no, you don't touch that thing. I think what he did is a little bit like what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, where some people were taking communion, not discerning the Lord's body. And because of that, God judged them, and some were sick, and some were dead. Um, Uzzah was not judging God's presence, God's holiness. It's the ark of God. So that's on the negative side. Maybe he wasn't a saved guy. On the positive side is, sort of positive, God's people are quite capable of really messing up. Amen? I mean, like you can be a true believer and really mess up. David, I love that the, the basic epitaph over his life is he was a man after God's own heart. Yeah, well, it didn't look like it with the Bathsheba and the Uriah thing, right? Like he was in bad shape then, but he was a true believer. He was a real man of God. So can real, real believers do pretty bad things sometimes? Yeah, they really can. God's people are quite capable of really messing up. So ultimately, good question. We don't know, was Uzzah a man of God? Wait, when you get to heaven, ask. Get the directory. Look up Uzzah. Where's Uzzah? Oh, there's no Uzzah. All right, he didn't make it here. Then, then they ask a second question. Same person still. They go to the New Testament, and you ask a question. What about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? You remember that couple? They sold a piece of land because everybody was selling land and donating the money to the church to help the poor and the ministry and all that stuff. And they said, hey, let's get in on this. We're going to sell a piece of land. We'll hold back some of the money. We'll give the rest, and we'll say that's all. We want to get the praise for giving all, but we're only giving part. We're holding some back for ourselves. And the jig was up, and the Holy Spirit revealed this thing to Peter and others, and um, they were judged. They were both struck dead. First, Ananias was struck dead. His wife came in later. She told the same story. She was struck dead. And your question, again, is not, was that right of God to do that? Rather, your question is, were they saved? Well, the text doesn't say. So wait till you get to heaven, get out the directory, and go go find out. Is there an Ananias here? Is there a Sapphira here? Probably going to be a lot of Sapphiras there. you got to get the right one. On the negative side of that question is they agreed together. It says that explicitly. They agreed together. They had a little conference. Let's lie. Let's tell everybody we're giving all the money, but we're not. We're going to keep some back. They agreed together to lie to the church. And worse, it says this in the text, to lie to the Holy Spirit, to lie to God. They're told you have not lied to man, but to God. Because they wanted to be celebrated, because they wanted status, because they wanted praise, because they wanted acclaim, because they wanted not the lust of the flesh, not the lust of the eyes, but the pride of life. They wanted that. That's bad. So maybe they weren't saved. But again, believers can really mess up. Believers can get in really bad places. And their untimely deaths, deaths may have been the discipline of the Lord upon his blood-bought children, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Great question. Wait for the last day. So that's the first question. Now I have another one, and they also want to be anonymous. And here's what they're asking. They say, sometimes I hear Christians or pastors say, quote, God told me, end quote. Or they hear a pastor saying, God told me to tell you. I've heard Stephen Furtick say, God told me to tell you in the middle of his sermon. Or they're pushing a certain doctrine, and they say, the Holy Spirit revealed this to me. What do you think of that? Good question. I love that question. Again, I want to say I've heard Stephen Furtick use that one. 
God told me to tell you, I think it's horrific that he does that. I think it's abominable that he does that. I've heard Priscilla Shirer. You heard of her? I've heard her many times because I've listened to her. I want to know who's out there. I listen to people. And she says, God told me, God revealed to me, things like that. What should you think of that? Here's what I think you should think of that. You should run. You should flee. If they're doing that in the church you should attend, you definitely need a new church. Every heretic that's ever lived has done that. God has revealed to me. God has shown me. No one else in church history has ever seen it, but here's his doctrine, and he's got it. And, uh, and, and, and he's going to stick to it because God showed it to him. I want to let you know I'm actually planning a, a podcast with a guest on this very topic. His name is Scott Annual. You can find him in an organization called G3. And he and I are going to do a podcast on this soon in Grounded. So look for that coming. But in the meantime, I just want to say, at the very best, the person who's saying to you, God told me or God revealed to me or the Holy Spirit gave me this, is a very poorly taught Christian. And at the very worst... They're a shyster. They're a fraud. They're a phony. Basically what this boils down to, they might not realize it if they're just poorly taught. They might realize it if they're a phony and a fraud and a shyster. They're claiming divine inspiration. Now that's serious business. You don't go claiming God told me something when he didn't really tell you something. They're claiming divine inspiration. They're putting words in God's mouth that didn't come out of God's mouth. And they're playing a trump card over you and all, over all of church history. doesn't matter what the strong believers of all church history, the orthodox of all church history have found on issues A, B, and C. God told me that it's X, Y, Z. No, They're playing a trump card. The Spirit of God revealed to me, bow before me, bow before my teaching. The Holy Spirit told me. They're also claiming to have a relationship with God that you don't have because you're left sitting there thinking, huh, the Holy Spirit never tells me anything. God never told me anything. Uh, I've never heard his voice. Um, So they must be in a level that I'm not on. I would just encourage you to run. They're dangerous. Don't listen to one word that comes out of their mouth. I think Paul describes them in Titus chapter 1. Verse 10, they are insubordinate, empty talkers. Verse 11, they are teaching things they ought not to teach, whose mouths must be stopped. Yes, pastors are responsible for stopping some people's mouths in the church of Jesus Christ. Titus 1.13, rebuke them sharply. Don't be nice to those people. Don't be like a little meek and nice and lammy and all that. No, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So you ought to be scared. You ought to get goosebumps. The hair on your arm ought to stand up when somebody says, God told me. Here's another thing going on. People need to understand that an impression they get is not God telling them something. It's an impression. It might be too much pizza last night. It could be indigestion. It could be a lot of things. Impressions don't equal God telling me something. Don't go claiming God's telling you something unless you're a prophet, unless God is speaking to you propositionally in words, and he's not doing that, I don't believe, now on the planet. So those were the three questions for today. Uh, Comfort for couples walking in fertility. What are we to think of Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira? And what about people who say, God told me to, or the Holy Spirit revealed to me? Thanks for asking those. Um, I love your questions that are coming in. Keep them coming, please. And thanks for listening today. See you.